Welcome back to Corpus. After a long and protracted hiatus, we are happy to come back to you with what we hope is some quality art banter. For our return, we're going to start off with speaking about some of the things we've seen, heard and read in the time that we've been away. A lot has happened since we last talked, and this is a segment where we tell you about the wonderful things that the people we like are doing in the world. And so this episode is going to be a catch-up episode more than anything else. Mm, it's very much a vibes episode, and we hope that you'll enjoy listening. We really are not giving you any options, okay? You you, you better enjoy it. Pew, pew, pew. First up, Rob Altameskin, friend of the podcast, guest on Season 1, Episode 3, and currently a research fellow at the Oslo National Academy of Fine Arts, was awarded the Lingen Art Award this year. The Lingen Art Award has been awarded to young talents in the field of painting since 1983. From then until 1992, it was awarded annually, and since 1994, every two years. So that since then, 13 female and 10 male artists have been honored. Shout out to this award, because Don knows it usually skews the other way, yeah? Yep, 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 yeah. So... We are very happy to say a massive congratulations to Robel. And yeah, I mean, to have someone who we've had on the podcast doing the things in the world. It's very, very exciting. It's giving very much, you know, the the light is shining on us too. You know what I'm saying? Yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep, yep. I mean, this is, this is our podcast. We, we can make it about us. Exactly. And <laughs> thank you, Robel, as well, for the link to those wonderful overalls that we will be shopping for online. Ugh, those... We are going to put a link to the overalls in the show notes and in the transcript because... Elites. Yep, yep, yep. Next, we have Jonathan Fraser, who you probably remember from episode two and episode four, one of which he declared painting dead and also just a great person altogether. In 2020, Jonathan had his first solo exhibition at Circle Art Gallery. It was called There's a Time and a Place, and the work included drawings and paintings from 2019 all the way to 2020. The exhibition was wonderful, and there's a video in which Jonathan talks about his work and his practice. You should watch that video, so we'll make sure to put a link to the video in the transcript. Another person who had their debut solo exhibition was Agnes Waruguru, who we haven't heard on the podcast yet, but I promise it's coming. Um, and also she's a corpus fave, to be honest. Truly, truly. Um, in 2020, she had a solo exhibition at Circle Art Gallery called Small Things to Consider. Um, and that was also the year that Agnes showed her work at the Stellenbosch Biennial. Mm -hmm. And she is now, and also some other great news, she is now in the first year of her residency at Rijks Academy in Amsterdam. There's also a video in which Agnes talks about that work, so that will also be included in the transcript. This transcript will basically be just a bunch of links to people we like doing wonderful things, so be prepared. Yeah, and that video is also really fun. Both both her video and Jonathan's videos are really fun mm -hmm. because part part of it is, as we say, that our faves so we we we, we like them mm -hmm. one would even say we love them mm -hmm. but even away from that just the way they are they speak about their work mm -hmm. and the way they invite us to their work mm -hmm. is so much fun and their personality is really coming through in yep, the videos yep, so yep, yep. must watch yes, must watch yes. highly recommended <laughs> Some of you may recall that we had Rosie Olang, writer, artist, bookmaker, purveyor of good vibes on the fourth episode of the first season. Mm -hmm. And she's been really busy. So this is the Rosie Olang segment of mm -hmm. this episode. Most recently, uh, she's worked on Cuisine and guest edited issue 14. It includes a great review of Akweke Emezi's Death of Vivek Oji by Wanini Kimemia, another Coppers fave who we'll be talking about later in this episode. She also worked on a music video for Dakika by Minza. It's this one minute short experience, um, honestly. Yep, like yep, yep, how, yep. how else would like you? Like a meditation on movement, mm -hmm. but also place, but also on waiting. It's it's really vibes, which, you know, is probably an inadequate way of describing it. But, you know, as always, there'll be a link and you will watch it and I promise you'll enjoy it. Yes. And this is one of those times when the... Because I also feel like art is about seeing, mm -hmm. but there are times when one is being seen. Mm -hmm. And Rosie had a chance to be a model for a mural by Walid Johnson titled Spirit. Spirit in Detroit, Michigan. It was part of a project where 60 artists were commissioned to create 100 murals around the city of Detroit, Michigan. And she got a chance to see the mural herself and to be photographed next to the mural. And mm -hmm. it's just so beautiful to witness that. Mm -hmm. 2021 was had those moments for her and we're really happy because those good vibes have been brought into 2022 with her winning the Asiko Fellowship. 
Tell us a little bit about Asiko, Don. So, originally started in 2010, I think. Asiko is this sort of a residency, workshop, education program hybrid. And the idea is that the program kind of bridges or fills in gaps in knowledge creation and critical thinking and education on the continent. And this year's is returning after a brief break. And it's taking part in Cape Verde this year. And Rosie is one of the fellows this year. So, we're very excited to see what is going to come out of that. Yeah. As we just mentioned, Wanini Kememia, artist, writer, a world maker, and a guest on episode five of the first season, has this really wonderful review of the death of Vivek Oji by Kweke Mezi in issue 14 of Cuisine, which was guest edited by Rosie Olang. In addition to that, they had their photography featured in a group exhibition last year, Various Small Fires, highlighting emerging artists' exhibition of the Circle Art Gallery in August 2022, and it was really wonderful to see them sharing their photography work with the world. Wanini's exhibition was actually in 2021, not 2022, which I've just said. But, you know, black boys are from the future. So, yeah, we're living hey. in the future. Since we've been gone, Kenyan multidisciplinary artist Jackie Karuti has been awarded the Henrik Gross Award in 2020, which is an award that aims to support emerging artists in their careers, responding to the challenges of practicing on the African continent, and is awarded biennially to an artist or an arts collective practicing in the field of visual arts. The award includes the creation of a book about the artist's work, which... Don, I have heard. To. I mean, I've just heard. You know, these are obviously whispers and gossips, but we have heard that the book is coming out soon, and there will be a launch. So, if any of you dear listeners happen to have Jackie's ear, please hit her up and tell her that we love to have her on the episode to talk, on the podcast to talk about the book. Jackie Karuti also received the Fluxus and its Consequences Grant awarded by the state capital of Weisbaden mm-hmm. at the. Dash, 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 Kunzverein, Weisbaden. This is a city in Germany whose name I cannot pronounce, but I promise you we will put a link in the transcript so you can look and see also the work that she got to did there and the exhibition that followed the award as well. <laughs> Don, it's the way you don't want to mispronounce it. Like, I don't know. You people can't see me, but I'm doing the fingers <laughs> emoji. You know, the test one. Listen, just because certain people from certain parts of the world butcher our names doesn't mean we need to return the energy. So, I get that. But, you I know, get that. I can spell it enough to Google it, and I guess that helps. That helps. And as we always say, the the transcript, the show notes, and so on are where you go for all of the good stuff. We will Truly. put in the links. We will have spelled everything correctly. Exactly. In so after talking a little bit about people, we also wanted to mention a few spaces that have opened up in the past couple of months. And we want to talk about the Untethered Magic Collective, which we, which is made up of Siowia Kambi, who was on the podcast in episode five, along with Dennis Kiberu and Kibe Wangunyu. Um, Untethered Magic is an art space that's about growth and independence, both artistic and environmental. And their programming includes artist mentorship and residency programs. In an interview with CN, Sylvia talks about their vision for untethered magic based around the idea that to produce strong work over a period of time, one needs to have the capacity for failure, time for experimentation, and the space for things that are n- not necessarily sellable but meaningful to society. And Don and I had a chance to tour the space. Yes, we did. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. We went with good the good a good friend of the podcast one Sujaisha mm-hmm. who's just good vibes overall mm-hmm. and it was the occasion of a certain event we will once we'll one day talk about in you know the oral history of Corpus <laughs> <laughs> and there's been many events for that history true 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 and so we got to see the physical space to talk about the ideas that are animating the space mm-hmm. and one of the things I really loved other than the views uh, don't knows that the views are stuck was how accessibility was baked into the making mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. this space. The fact that they had consulted a bunch of people so that it's not just um, your standard Nairobi art space. <laughs> and I could write an essay about this. I actually wrote something in my newsletter about a show I went to see. Yeah, there was an exhibition that we saw that essentially said fuck accessibility. But yeah. that's another conversation. That, that's another conversation. This is a peaceful episode. Tunapenda uh, money. But yeah, I I thought that was really important because I think a, a lot of the ways in which accessibility is handled in a lot of spaces, not just the art mm-hmm. world, but in the world generally, is that it's an afterthought. Mm-hmm. It's added after the fact, or it's added because somebody who they deem as important needs to come in on a wheelchair or uses Braille or something like that, or mm-hmm. needs some audio descriptions. Um, 
but what if this was baked in from the very beginning? What yeah. does it look like to have sign language as standard? What does it look like to have transcriptions as standard? What does it look like to have um, ramps, whatever ramps there might be uh, for, you know, ramps in a metaphorical and literal sense. So Yeah, and so it was really good to hear sort of like seeing this face and hearing them talk about, you know, thinking always about questions of physical accessibility, especially because the location of the space is in a bit of a, I guess what one would call a somewhat rugged landscape, but mm-hmm. to hear them thinking about how those different places can be accessed by different people and even spaces for gathering, but also spaces for private moments and spending your time alone. So yeah, it's something that we're really excited about and we'll probably bring Shawia and Kibe and Kiberu on at some point to tell us more about it. Yeah, definitely. Another space that's just opened in Nairobi, which you're going to be watching quite closely, is the Nairobi Contemporary Art Institute, a non-profit visual art space dedicated to the growth and preservation of contemporary art from East Africa. Um, the space opened in January of this year, and their first exhibition is a retrospective exhibition of Kenyan artist Sainu Adu, and we'll speak more about this later on in this episode. But also it's really interesting and exciting to see a non-profit space coming in and working on sort of building on the legacy of other spaces and other people that have done that work in the past. So we'll put a link to their website, information on the first exhibition, and then, you know, we're also just looking forward to the journey of Nkai. Another space that's been opening, oh, a lot of things seem to be happening in Nairobi, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but another space that's been opened is the Sea Ant space in Westlands. It's actually at the mall Westlands, which is called the mall mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it's headed by Jeb Corey Rose, who's the who's Sea Ant's projects coordinator. The idea as they state it, is to create and offer a space of encounter to write, read, research, and engage and exchange ideas. And that has been on our mind for a long time. This, mm-hmm. A space like this has been on our mind for mm-hmm. a long time. Especially spaces that are kind of for gathering, for thinking together, for mm-hmm. working together, and perhaps not necessarily the pressure of a kind of output. And oftentimes the out being some kind of the output being some kind of exhibition or some kind of commercial project and so on and so forth. But really spaces that kind of encourage that, you know, coming together and thinking together about, you know, work, ideas. Our location, our locales, and so on and so forth. So, you know, yeah. again, another space to watch. Yeah. And also, I, we have a long and checkered history with CN ourselves. <laughs> by another me, one I mean for the CN oral history. <laughs> uh, because one of their first writing workshops for young art critics took part in Nairobi in, um, took place, sorry, in Nairobi in 2016. And formed a network of young writers that has grown ever since. Mm-hmm. I, I was with Rosie in that workshop Yes, well, I was about so, to say that yeah. uh, the first time I encountered Dawn's writing and Rosie's writing was through the text that was produced from that workshop. Mm-hmm. And Dawn has feelings about that text. Uh, mixed feelings, you know, because he was younger then and all of that stuff. But mm. my mother, who loves Don, I was stupid. Dawn, I was foolish and he fell in love. Yeah, as Mara, I would say. <laughs> but my mother, who loves Don, no, it's not Mara, dearly, anyway. we'll correct the transcript. Uh, <laughs> my mother, who loves Don dearly, uh, first encountered Don's writing then, and Rose's writing, and she's been. I wouldn't go so fast call her a stan because she is going to listen to this episode and she's going to be like, now. What now. even is a stan? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I I love that it formed that ground, that space. Yeah. I think that this space is very exciting just even because of that history and the possibilities that exist. Exactly. <laughs> Over and above these great and very interesting, very exciting happenings, some personal news. Over to you, Don. Um, so Namura has this amazing newsletter now. Mm-hmm. It's called I Know You Think This Net- Newsletter Is About Books. And you know what? As the title promises, there is mention of books, but also there's a lot about what they're reading, what they're thinking about, the things that they're encountering in their world and how that's in sort of interacting with the ideas that they're thinking about at the moment. But like generally this newsletter, I am a subscriber and let me tell you, it's been hits on hits on hits. It comes out every week on Monday and I promise you, you need to subscribe. And following that need to subscribe is a link to subscribe in the transcript, which is basically what we do on this podcast. Send you links and we pretend that we have a podcast. And since we are hailing each other on this episode, Dawn was featured in a book, The yes. Paradise Edict, with an artist interview with Michael Armitage on his show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the exhibition. Um, he had an exhibition at House de Kunst, which I believe then traveled to the Royal Academy in London. Um, and yeah, it was just a really wild experience, to be honest, to like see your texts in 
in a physical book, mm-hmm. which is like, I will say shout out to the team because it's a very pretty book. It has this lovely two-tone cloth-bound hardcover and whatever. But just like, you know, I was telling you how it's like, you know, you do the interview and then you're like, okay, it's done. It's in the world now. And then a couple of months later, you see it in a book and it's like, wow, this is real. So yeah, that was, that was really, really cool. Yeah. And yeah. Dawn, as always, interviews really well, asks such brilliant questions Thank and you. Is, you think so beautifully like your mind your mind is what let me tell you guys you know when everyone is like how how did you know this was the love of your life Lomo, as the youth say plp plp a platonic life partner we are each other's platonic life partners the first thing that drew me to you honestly is your mind like you're so smart and it really comes across in the work you do and in this interview this interview is a, a great example of that so look out for that we will put in a link to the book mm-hmm. and if you talk to Don nicely maybe just maybe he could send you a picture of the page you know so as a treat as a treat as a treat, as a treat. but well, also yes Mike's newsletter because I have read this newsletter but also it's interesting looking at this newsletter and seeing sort of how conversations that we might have had being rendered Mm -hmm. or things that we've interacted with in one way or another seeing them sort of summed up or how you present them so you need to subscribe I'll say it again Mm -hmm. and news that has to do with not just Dawn but also Rosie, who we mentioned earlier, is that both of them went to Dar es Salaam at separate times, so they didn't get to have Dar es Salaam times together for the inaugural Nafasi Curatorial Academy. Tell us a little bit about that, Don. That was really cool. So Nafasi Artface in Dar es Salaam have started this annual program. The first year it was the Artist, Artists Academy, and then this year was the Curatorial Academy. And Last the I- year. Last year, yeah. again, black boys are from the future <laughs> or from the past. Really, we transcend time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the program was really bringing together people, different people, artists, but also non-artists who are interested in curatorial practice and really a point to come together and think about different aspects of what curating looks like in the context that we're working with. And it was really exciting to be in that space and also like attending, again, as with many checkered histories, we also have feelings about workshops. But it was also really interesting to be in a space and not be there kind of like as a student or the learner but also someone facilitating sessions but also because it really put me in a place to also be able to ask myself some questions that perhaps I've taken for granted about you know what the work that I want to do looks like you know it was a very interesting time also it was my first time in Dar es Salaam it was terribly terribly hot but you know I think I would certainly recommend Dar es Salaam to people if it came to it yeah I think you really enjoyed your time there yeah. and I must say as someone who thinks a lot with Don and I've worked collaboratively with him. This is literally a site of our collaborative work. Mm -hmm. It was very exciting seeing you in a position where you're imparting knowledge because this is a conversation I've had with our dear friend Lutivini Majanja who writes beautifully. We'll Mm. we'll put in a link to her website Mm -hmm. in in the transcript. And one of the things we were talking about was exactly what you're saying that it's so easy to get caught up in and I think especially in the global south that all you are is as a person, you're a site of workshops mm-hmm. and never a facilitator, mm-hmm. never the thinker, mm-hmm. only the person who, to whom the thing, the thought is being transmitted. And so even that just being having to think about yourself differently in this space, I saw in your case was so, such a powerful moment, you know, think of yourself as knowledgeable. You are knowledgeable, but to be in this site as a person who is a keeper of knowledge, a person who holds knowledge and who is essentially sharing it as opposed to the standard workshop experience, which is you're here to learn things and at best you're going to exchange information with other people, mm-hmm. but you don't know things. Mm-hmm. You don't mm-hmm. come in mm-hmm. as a person who knows things, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that was a powerful moment. So For sure, yeah. yeah. And also what was really great is also this workshop wasn't, for example, it wasn't a situation where I was sitting in a room with other artists or other curators. It was, there were artists, there were people who were very new to their practices, there were people who were able to invite and bring on who had much more experiences. But then there were also people who were coming from, you know, spoken word and poetry and writing we had someone whose day job was a pharmacist but it's also being in a room and speaking about the work that you do and the ideas that you're interested in but also speaking with people who aren't necessarily um they don't maybe use the same language that you use for the work and so also needing to actually think about these ideas and how you articulate with them and that sort of 
and not just relying on words that sometimes you use that are kind of like shorthands, I mm-hmm. think, for things, you know, because we assume a shared knowledge. So that was also, I think it was a very interesting challenge for me. So thank you very much to Team Nafasi for having me. It's funny because actually the way I ended up at this thing is that I applied to participate and they're like, actually, you know, we feel like you know a few things. So, you know, thank you to Rebecca, Corey, and Justin Pango for being like, yeah, Don, you know a few things. Yeah, and you do. So, you know, gas yourself up, fam. Yeah, we exactly. gas you all the time. Toot your own horn, I Exactly. So now that you're all caught up, um, let's talk about a couple of our exhibition-going experiences over the past few months. As we all know, exhibition-goings were how this podcast started anyway. Um, we want to talk first about two exhibitions that we've seen recently, which I think are interesting to us and a bit of an anomaly in this space, just because they are works by older artists who, you know, that appeal to novelty and newness or whatever, a lot of older artists aren't exhibiting as regularly as they should be in Nairobi at the moment. So what, the first exhibition is a retrospective of Sein Wadu at the Nairobi Contemporary Art Institute. And then the second was an exhibition of work by Tabi. Wathuku and Teresa Musoki at Circle Art Gallery. So I guess maybe the first place to think would be what do we feel about retrospectives and like seeing Seinwadu's show and seeing an artist's work from, you know, the early 1980s all the way to, you know, the past two, three years. I'm sure all the listeners are like, this was so young, the early 80s, they're saying it like it's a thousand years ago. Girl is, it's just 30 something years ago, our 60 something year old listeners. Yep, yep, yep. But um, I love the work that a retrospective exhibition does. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important for us to, and this is something we talk about, it's so important for us to situate current practice, current work in a genealogy, you know, like that these things are not divorced, this work is not divorced from what has come before. Mm-hmm. And when you see an artist's work and you see their evolution, but also their evolution when you think about who else is making work during this time, who, who they're thinking with, who they're at parties with, like at Saints Retrospective, there are these beautiful photographs mm-hmm. where you see you know, him at parties and at shows and at openings uh, with The his photo wife. of Sane in like a demon, denim suit with mm-hmm. mutton chops and Eunice. Exactly. Like, that photo, by the way, is like... Quality, quality, quality vibes. Those two were having a good time. You know, a great time. And so even those things, like just to situate the artist, as as we're saying, because old hands will know that part of the way this podcast began was originally, and nothing stopping us from from, from doing that at some point. Mm-hmm. Founders, we hope you're listening, but <laughs> was an archival project. Mm-hmm. You know, we are current, we are archiving the present, but mm-hmm. also to speak about how it connects to, to mm-hmm. the past and hopefully, you know, we'll have older artists come on and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. But retrospectives are doing this work. They're visually doing this work because, for instance, during Sin's show, there were some pieces that were very much of their time, mm-hmm. you know, with like, say, family planning messages and so on. And it was almost like we almost don't talk about family planning anymore, anymore. Yeah. you know, either either the state has, and part of that, of course, is the HIV AIDS crisis and so on, which is a thing we could discuss at another point and how it factors into art and art production. Mm-hmm. But even with Tabitha Wasuku and um, Teresa Musoke's work at Sako, there's just that sense of you're really getting a sense of who these artists are, where they have come from, how their work has evolved, what ideas keep popping up in their work, mm-hmm. the ways in which they have shifted their relationship with color, with with form, mm-hmm. with material and mm-hmm. all of those things. Mm-hmm. And I saw it, I think it's so exciting to have that um Don wrote in the notes a survey of an artist's work. But yes, you know, uh, uh something from you know like a bird's eye view, obviously, because someone like Sane, I I I can confirm this is ridiculously prolific we'd have to you know like maybe shut down a small town and uh you know like, fill up all the social halls exactly. and the blah 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 his work. just to be able to show all everything of his work everything that he's done but yeah i think that being able to see an artist work over such a long period of time is really refreshing as you're saying very rare in mm-hmm. our context but mm-hmm. so useful even for younger artists to have um a point of entry into those artists' work and to be in conversation with those Yeah, for sure. And it's also, it's a chance, you know, it's 
exactly what you're saying about connecting things to a genealogy and understanding where things have come from and understanding also sort of the context that they, they were working in. I mean, something like Sein Wadu, for example, talking about seeing family planning. I mean, you're looking at artists who's working at a very particular time and this is also connecting to questions of, you know, you have structural adjustment and you have privatization and how those are affecting healthcare and, you know, household incomes and so on and so forth. And seeing that evolution from that work, which in some ways is maybe a bit more explicit, a bit more literal to the work that he's making more recent, the paint language developing it's just and exactly given how prolific Seinwadu is I think also congratulations to the team at Nkai for also managing to somehow capture that sort of trajectory but doing so with I think quite a bit of economy which I think is quite a challenge mm -hmm. and for T Tabitha Watuku for example seeing an exhibition that focus almost entirely on her paintings that have to do with the landscape which I think is not necessarily the first thing that comes to mind when one thinks of Tabitha Watuku and mm -hmm. it's really a chance to see something because also these aren't works so it's not a single body of work and it's not um, work that was made over a sort of continuous period of time but seeing an artist return to this subject over and over again that's something that's continually present and continually animating their thinking and even Teresa Musoke I mean I like to joke that you know this is the only artist who paints animals where I pay serious attention to which is not necessarily true but you know seeing someone especially also some subjects like landscape for example a difficulty with this part of the world is you know a lot of painting particularly with landscape and with nature and animal and so on and so forth very often kind of speaks either to a very particular kind of reductive expat touristy gaze mm -hmm. or the flip side is also these very weird romantic African landscapes that white British settlers are still making today which like abolish artists who we will not name but the thing is it's really great to see someone who's sort of been consistently interested I mean one of the funny things is in the Musoki exhibition for example there were two paintings of wild dogs mm -hmm. and it's funny hearing the artist talk about how at some point, I think it was the 1980s or something, she went on a drive with a friend of hers and she saw them and these, I think they were endangered and there were very few of them left actually. And so having then done an exhibition of prints that were focused entirely on African wild dogs and then a few years later painting them and having them come up in drawing. So this thing that the artist encountered at some point and then it was over and over and over again. A motif, if you will. Exactly. You yeah. have a painting of wild dogs from the early 1990s and you have a painting of wild dogs from... 2019 2020 like it's really exciting so i think that for me was what was really great about you know seeing really these two exhibitions mm -hmm. but yeah the being able to just you know see how an artist has grown see how an artist thinking has evolved but also how certain things have remained through and through and through yeah um i'm curious maybe this is something you could talk about or we could talk about what do you think um is present or is absent in shows like this in retrospectives like um especially because you do curatorial work and you're doing more curatorial work as the year progresses mm -hmm. you know <laughs> it's under wraps but don't worry you'll find out <laughs> soon enough um and you talked a little bit about you touched a little bit about this in you know like when you were complimenting Inkai's stuff in you know putting together such a show mm -hmm. what what do you think is going on in terms of the curatorial ideas that are informing what gets chosen and what doesn't yeah. get chosen. I mean, for I mean, I think a retrospective is really an interesting challenge for mm -hmm. any. I think for the artists equally as much as the curator. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an artist who I'm quite a big fan of, Amy Silman, who there was an interview and she was talking about having a, a retrospective and how there were some things that were going being put going into the show that, quite frankly, she was embarrassed to see out in public. Mm -hmm. But I think it's an interesting challenge because you're asking yourself like, what is the point of this retrospective? What are we trying to communicate? Is it just a question of you know, in the 80s the artists made this, in the 70s they made this, in the 2000s they made this? Are you sort of trying to trace certain threads are there perhaps a particular idea that you're trying to draw through line in the work and i think that's for me what is both interesting and also a challenge for trying to put on a retrospective of an artist more so in a case for example in a case such as ours where we also have an artist who you have you know saying what do again mm -hmm. a practice that goes back for more than 40 years mm -hmm. teresa musoke practicing for i mean more than 50 years this was the first female artist in uganda to have an exhibition at the national museum in uganda in 1965 mm -hmm. but for example you know how do you also get access to the works you know and you can't get access to works depending on say who bought them where they were exhibited maybe some things got lost along the way how do you fill in those gaps do you fill in those gaps you mm -hmm. know is there is the story sort of truncated or broken up in some parts if you're not able to 
meet certain requirements about what a retrospective should look like. And I guess maybe that's also just a question overall, you know, what does a retrospective look like? And mm. so I think these two exhibitions, Say and also, I guess, on a smaller scale, the show that had Teresa Mosoke and Tabitha Otuku and Yoni Wait, like, I think for me, they were starting points to think about that. And also, quite frankly, also thinking about, you know, which artist do you give a retrospective to? That's also a question that mm-hmm. one has to consider. Like, you know, how are you thinking about the sig- contribution that an artist has made to this space, to this history? And how are you then articulating that contribution in the form of retrospective? Yeah, and I would also wonder what's the basis of the determination that this artist is worthy of a retrospective. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Like, uh, is it that they've been making work for a certain period? Is it that they've won certain awards? Is it that their work has fetched certain amounts in the secondary market yeah. and so on? Like, as you're saying, there are so many factors that go into who mm-hmm. gets to be seen yeah. in this sense. What is the work? Who is the audience for this retrospective? Yeah. Why is the artist working? Where have they been showing? All the, like, you know, what is the intent? I mean, who's to say it's not some commercial gallery doing a retrospective to sort of, quote-unquote, reintroduce an artist into the market and mm-hmm. hike prices? Like, mm-hmm. those are all the kind of weird things that go into the thinking about such work. Yeah, and that now brings up the issue of the the role of, say, non-for-profit spaces or museums and mm-hmm. such places that are not motiv- that don't have a profit motive going mm-hmm. into showing work mm-hmm. and their role in, sh- you know, like, retrospective Mm-hmm. Shows, for instance, yeah. because they're, as you're saying, their motivations are very different. Their goal is not to increase the the cost of these works or these artists' works in, in the secondary market and so on and so forth. I mean, there's so many questions we could ask. We could have an, a whole episode about this because archival practices, I think, that is really interesting yeah. to both of us. Mm-hmm. And we could go on and on and on. But other things have been happening. So, you know, we'll just hit pause on that. But yes. I guess this is, you know, if you feel like you want a series on a retrospective, hit us up and let's make it happen mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and to carry on with this um speaking of retrospectives um a couple of weeks ago um courtesy of work i was able to travel to cape town for the cape town art fair but while i was there i got to see this exhibition at the novo foundation the exhibition is called when rain clouds gather pew, pew, pew. literary reference pew, pew, pew. Exactly. First of all, I was so hyped when I was walking and I saw the title of the exhibition and the person I was just like, what are you so excited about? And I'm like, it's the Bessie Head book. It's a title. I love that book. But aside from that, the exhibition is of work by South African women artists from 1950 to 2000. And I think for me, seeing this exhibition, seeing all this work gathered into this space, seeing also a wall with a timeline of sort of this history and as we said, includes archival material and books and pamphlets and that sort of thing. I think for me, I just got the sense that it was very well researched. Um, there was a lot of attentiveness to the work and to its history, to the modes in which the work was displayed. And like I said, the title, the title was just absolutely wonderful. And it was really the kind of thing you go into an exhibition and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know what? This is the kind of work I'd want to do sometime. And yeah, so I just wanted to mention that and be like, that was that was wonderful. It was also really interesting coming from this exhibition mm-hmm. because also within the same organization, there's another exhibition as well of Irma Stern, who was a South African painter as well. And these, I think, the exhibitions which are called the Zanzibari Years. And I'm not going to lie. They were nicely painted, mm-hmm. which, but like an exhibition, I feel a way about a white artist from South Africa traveling to Zanzibar. It's, I'm sorry, but it was giving ethnography. Like, I'm not going to lie, like beautiful gowns, but like leave the gowns alone, let them rest. It was mm. also really interesting for me because how the work is framed is, you know, they're paintings, but then they're framed in these sort of frames that approximate sort of like the textures of like Swahili architecture and Swahili doors. And there was this section on a wall where you had a kind of key to the different like motifs that are used in like decorating Swahili doors and Swahili architecture. And like on the one hand, it was interesting, but it's one of those instances where you find yourself feeling a bit, I think, uncomfortable with the gaze. Mm-hmm. And so for me, coming out off of that and that artist also being a woman and then coming into this sort of space and seeing just this incredible wealth of so, so, so much work by various artists. It was just, honestly, it was so refreshing and it was such like, it was, I mean, I'm going to say it, it was inspiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. I was going to ask you like, but did that make you feel like, I mean, as this, again, as a person who has a curatorial practice, as a person who's thinking about work and showing it and thinking about work, 
you know, thinking with artists, uh, what sort of influence would you say it had maybe in that moment or, you know, like what sort of thoughts would, did it inspire in you? I mean, more than anything, like I said, for me, it's, you know, you enter Swiss and you say, this is something that I would like to be able to do. Like, this is work that I'd be interested in. Because mm -hmm. also, I believe it's a project that had been development for almost 10 years, if mm -hmm. I'm not wrong. But like, yeah, well, you know, we will go back to the website and we will make sure the transcript has all the right information. So please, you know, if you want to fact check to me, fact check the transcript instead. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so seeing also just like having having the space and time to really dig into a subject and really do research and really think through a project and bring it into fruition. I think for me, it's just, it's a kind of thing that, you know, would be, I think a really, really enjoyable and like a great learning experience. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, it was also interesting. This is something I even realized after the fact, but I remember there was one artist whose work I really, really fell in love with. I think I even posted like a couple of pictures of her work on Instagram. Um, but what was interesting is also later on doing some research, there's another younger South African artist who I really like. And there's a project that he'd done where he talked about, he'd done a project where he was uncovering murals by the artist who was his auntie. Um, and, also, I am trying to avoid, I'm trying to remember the names. The younger South African artist is Kemangwa Lehulere. I, again, if you ever listen to this podcast and I've butchered your name, I promise. It's not personal. I just don't know how to pronounce it. And then the older artist, I believe, was called Gladys. The second name is, the second name is eluding me, but I'll find it. I'll put it in the notes. But it was also interesting after the fact coming across a book about this project by this artist and then seeing the name be like, oh my God, this is that artist whose work I saw in this show and I really, really loved. Mm -hmm. So, like I said, those connections, the kind of things that sort of pop out in that over and above, the kind of overarching theme of the exhibition mm. are really the thing that for me was a takeaway. It was like, this, this was wonderful. It was yeah. a really, really great experience. Mm -hmm. Definitely a highlight for that trip because also Cape Town anyway yeah there were some low lights yeah. but the highlights we're just not were going high. to talk about yeah. the low yeah. light was also another also an exhibition also a retrospective but you know that's a conversation for another day yeah and maybe what we could talk about during our retrospectives episode is mm, the politics for instance that underpin retrospectives yeah. you know, and the politics of retrospectives but the politics say of the artists and the way they show up in the work mm -hmm. and what that means for a space for uh, a curator even if for instance and i've been thinking about this a lot um confronting some of those uh problematic yeah. ideas mm -hmm. and saying hey you know this is a piece of work and maybe providing certain context mm -hmm. for for the audience you know saying like how can we have those conversations while allowing the work to be to be encountered? You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah. I don't know. Like I think that's that part kind, of a that. kind of mediation. I think yeah. is also important yeah. in yeah. that process. But yeah, because I think um, no offense, in in a lot of senses, we could hang work beautifully, uh, but it's another thing to provide room in which to to have certain conversations in which to, you know, really. Um, even have those uncomfortable moments. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because some of that art is, I mean, Don showed me. <laughs> there was a show that we Ooh. saw and there were images. And me, myself, personally, my takeaway was just like, I'm not the audience for this. Now, Maybe the work is, and and this is to say nothing of the artist's practice because I don't know their work. This was their first time. But yeah, I was like, maybe, maybe I'm not the one for this. And also an interesting takeaway from that was having this conversation with Singano is also like, you know, truly, truly, you don't have to engage with every single work of art you find in the world. Mm. Like, it's okay for some things to not be for you. But yeah, thinking about that and actually thinking, and it's about, you know, whether it's contextual information, whether it's history, whether it's timelines, whether it's biographies, whether it's content warnings, yeah. you know, but really trying as much as possible to provide tools and entry points for your audience to engage with the work. Yeah, yeah, it's so vital. Yeah. And thanks for sharing, though. Yeah, which is all to say, retrospectives, yeah. They're a mixed bag. Basically, yes. Yeah. Sometimes they're in their bag, mm -hmm. and sometimes... They fumble the bag. Yeah. Sometimes they don't know there is a bag to fumble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But bags, nonetheless. <laughs> Another thing that happened, as Don may recall, last year I went to see Lemek Tompoika's show at Redhill Art Gallery with someone we are going to call... A PFF. PFF, yes, and PFF it was... stands for Problematic Former Fave, <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very interesting experience because they hadn't been in that space before. They'd not seen Lemex work before, and 
the, I, I think one of the things that really highlighted to me was that I've grown accustomed to seeing work mm-hmm. with other art nerds. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we sort of have what what we used to, what Don and I colloquially call an eating club. That's basically. <laughs> At people. Yeah. Uh, we pretend to be going to see exhibitions, but really the goal is lunch. Long exactly. lunches, long leisurely lunches. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> there's something about someone who's not in the life and the way they they come to the work, the mm-hmm. way they experience the work, the way they interrogate it and the way they just interact with it. You know, that's very different. And it's part of it is what you are saying, that on some level we are accustomed to certain jargon mm-hmm. i i think we, we 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 generally wouldn't say that about ourselves but mm-hmm. there is a way in which we talk about these things that means that it's exclusive and exclusionary mm-hmm. but if you're all speaking the same language you don't, you don't notice that that's it. what you're doing and so that that, that was a very curious mm-hmm. experience you know this is a person who's unaccustomed to the mores of this world um unaccustomed to the artist's work per se, who's coming in as maybe someone who likes nice pictures. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And and you are here as someone who has seen this artist's work for quite some time. Yes. You know the artist in a sense. And so you have, your entry point to this exhibition is very different from theirs. And so, you know, you're looking for different things in the work from, you know, you're saying, well, I saw this show a year ago. I saw this show two years ago. What then? How does this connect to what the artist has done before? And so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But you are now here with someone who this is their first time. And mm-hmm. so part of that is if you are to have a conversation as well, there are certain things that if you are to say them about the work, then you also kind of need to give a bit of an explanation of where it is that you're coming from with such a comment. Yes. And actually, I think that happened on that day, mm-hmm. on the day we went to see the show, was that Lemek happened to be at the gallery. Mm-hmm. And so it was one of those times when it's one thing to talk about art. It's another thing. That's why we generally like going to artist talks. It's another thing to speak to the artist about, about the, the work. work. And... Yeah, it was a bit like, you know that book my mom loves, The Grab Hunter? Mm-hmm, <laughs> we'll mm-hmm. put a link to the book in, mm-hmm. in the show notes, uh, in the transcript, and where where there's a character who's trying to infiltrate the, the world of literature, mm-hmm. and he, he learns that you just have to ask certain words, certain questions, you know, what inspires you, what, what are your rituals, and so on and so forth, and... It takes somebody, you know, what in anthropology we'd call, you know, a participant observer, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. an outsider, really, to mm-hmm. to for you sometimes to be able to remove yourself. Or like that story Don and I have of the kid who we were trying to tell, this is a print. I told a child, They're like, nah, that's a, a matatu. That's a matatu. You know, this was Dennis Moragori's work, but that sense, not just of innocence, but of outsiderness, mm-hmm. I think is something I hope to maybe recover or tap into mm-hmm. on occasion. Because or if nothing else, to just be consistently aware of yes. the work that you're doing. To yes. always assume there is someone who you're going to be speaking who has no idea, but also over and above that, maybe has no investment in the thing that you're doing, which is all right. But then how do you kind of invite them to, you know, encounter this thing with you? And like, what does that look like? Yeah. And speaking of encounters, I think what Gadoni Kenozia has been doing, and Gadoni has these really wonderful spaces on Twitter where mm-hmm. she invites literary sorts to talk, to have literary conversations. But she also has like art roundups on, on Instagram and essentially art tours. Uh, art tours might be, she might be listening and saying, that's not really, <laughs> it's not that big. But there are these small gatherings of friends where they go and see art at different Nairobi locations or, you know, art locations in and around Nairobi. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, I've been thinking of it as like a citizen curatorial practice Mm -hmm. you know this is an art lover who's going to see art with other art lovers Mm -hmm. and sometimes introducing these other people to art to the nairobi art scene Mm -hmm. which is a thing we haven't had for a while you remember those at some point in time i believe it was kuana trust for example used to have the art bus but i think it's also interesting as an organization kuana for example being i guess the insider in this case what they decide to include on their art tour you know who Mm -hmm. are the artists or what are the studios or the exhibitions and so on and so forth as opposed to someone who's just like you know what this weekend i think i'm gonna go see some art and what they will seek out and what they will encourage people to come and see with them yeah, yeah, for sure. Because um, I have a dear friend, Gatweri, who has been going on these tours. And she's been telling me, I know it really is my first foray into, into art. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are some conversations I feel like you and I and and our usual gang have sort of co- 
concluded. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And to have those conversations afresh also forces me to confront certain certain realities, realities about the world exactly. that we inhabit. And it's very refreshing. As you're saying, part of it is that reflexiveness in the mm-hmm. way we encounter art, in the way we encounter the art world mm-hmm. also, in the way we encounter the dynamics that, you know, are always present in the yeah. way we interact. And even how those spaces, you know, how those being someone again who's an insider, the sort of the script in mm-hmm. a sense of how you expect to behave in a certain place. And we even had this instance where I think, was it Gazondi Ogatori who went to see an exhibition and, you know, made a joke about how the work was wonderful, but, you know, the curator hovered and the curator was testy. It was and, like, you see, and you see, those are the kind of things that for someone like myself, you know, perhaps also being, you know, that you kind of know people in this space that, you know, you that's not necessarily maybe the energy you'd get if only because perhaps you know how to move through a certain space. Mm-hmm. So it's really interesting to hear someone else telling you, you know, I'm coming into these spaces that maybe you frequent and this is what I'm feeling. Mm. Not just this is what I, I am seeing, but also this is the energy that I'm finding at this gallery or this exhibition or whatever. Mm, mm, yeah. mm. Some of your faves are problematic. You know? <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know, like, um, I, I really love what you're saying and I think that's that's a challenge for me, Nichanga Moto, if you will, mm-hmm. to, yeah, <laughs> keep that sense of reflexivity, that that sense of wonder yeah. also. Exactly, you know? that sense of wonder yeah. to discover things anew and also, I mean, I guess, you know, trying to also stave off cynicism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. So true, Bestie. Yeah, which is to say, you know, see art with your friends and not just your art-seeing friends. Hey. Parapanda, parapanda Italia, parapanda, parapanda, parapanda Italia, parapanda. And this is the epi- part of the episode where we talk about the thing we're going to talk about eventually, the parapanda, also known as the pandemic. And For context, parapanda means trumpet in Kiswahili, and there's a song about the end of the world that talks about the trumpet sounding. Anyway. Let's get into it. Yeah, we're really interested in how it's shown up in art and art production in the region, in the world, um, on the continent. Mm -hmm. And to start off, I think it's clear. And honestly, if it's not clear, you're either quite frankly not living on that, let alone under a rock or just not paying attention. But I think the pandemic has affected everyone's lives in very, very different ways. Mm -hmm. Some very sort of like extreme ways, some perhaps mildly so, but it's shifted a lot of things. And one of the things we found really, really grating, especially this would have been in, you know, mid early to mid-2020, in the early days of Parampana, this really, really, really frankly embarrassing great equalizer discourse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, at some point it was like, Yikes! (laughs) Yikes! <laughs> yeah. Because, um, and it was happening everywhere, but I think artists, maybe because the nature of art is performative in a way that your boring desk job is not. Mm-hmm. They were saying these things in public spaces mm-hmm. and basically being like, the artist in Milan is the same as the artist in Nairobi, is the same as the artist in Bali. Is the same. No, no. We, are, we are not. It's and like... the fact that we're being affected by the same pandemic does not equals make you know what i'm saying yeah because for instance there was a time in which uh borders were closed and of course that affected art production in terms of residences in terms of biennales and art fairs and so mm-hmm. on but people could still move within their borders for mm-hmm. instance and mm-hmm. if you're in a place where between supply chain issues and um the pandemic and so on you don't have access to materials to certain spaces to certain conversations and so on mm-hmm. um how are you equal to the person who still has access to yeah, those things you know. you know and i think there's an illusion also illusion of the fact that class still showed up in certain ways mm-hmm. in in huge ways yeah. who's able to stay home and you know take their time to really focus on their art during this time Mm -hmm. and who doesn't have the means to support themselves Mm -hmm. as they you know um try to produce art you know like i think for me it was really one of those times when you know your politics comes comes to bear on the way you're thinking about the world because some people have access to the means of production and some people don't and some people don't and flattening the world and saying that this is a great equalizer was a really 
and suffer remove on on the part of a lot of, of many. And I think it's also <laughs> the question of also I think it also speaks to I think certain fictions that I think the art world TM has about itself as mm-hmm. a sort of egalitarian space, this space that's always about the greater good and thinking about community and society. Because quite frankly, people were coming on this internet and talking to people like people weren't affected on a very material level. Like mm-hmm. you know, there's someone for whom you know not being able to travel means having to postpone a fellowship for one year. There's someone for whom not being able to live the work meant not being able to work, which means over and above, say, healthcare, it's literal subsistence was an issue. And so, yeah, that was one of the things which I think was just grating is a generous way of putting it. But that was that was clown behavior. <laughs> it yeah. really was clown behavior. And some other clown behavior also came from artists and the way they decided to consider the pandemic. If I never see another mask <laughs> on your face, it will be too fucking soon. Pardon the language. Honestly and truly. And um, I think what it really highlighted for me, including our fave um, Zadie, who decided to write, you know, some uh, reflections <laughs> on the pandemic in like on like day two. I'm exaggerating here, but it did feel like that. Like the way pandemics work, and this is a strange, a very strange and random thing. I don't know if I told you this, Dawn, but... Uh, in 2019, I'd gotten mildly obsessed with the 1918 flu pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, partly because the BBC had had a series of shows marking the 100th anniversary, but also because for a time I was really obsessed with um, how empire sort of influenced these global movements of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. people and disease and so on and so forth. And so by the time the pandemic rolled around, mm-hmm. even when it started in Wuhan, I was yeah, I was paying attention to it maybe a bit more than the general public. And there's actually a video in which I joke, you know the one where I joke and say, Why am I touching my face? What if I yes. get coronavirus? Yes, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> which I shot in maybe January of exactly, 2020. Exactly. Um so yeah there was that level of awareness, but there's also the awareness that, which I I would hope would be seen in artistic work, but I'm sorry, it just did not show up. Like, it's okay to sit with these things. The way pandemics work is that, statistically, it's going to be around for a while. Mm-hmm. With with coronavirus, with, with COVID-19 especially, it's... F- approaching like an endemic state where yeah. we will we will live we will never truly be at peace with it because it has long-term consequences it's not just a question of respiratory issues it's the fact that a lot of people are going to be made are going to be disabled are going to be displaced and mm-hmm, so on and so forth mm-hmm. because of the effects of the virus but for a lot of artists it just was reduced to we can't move we there are masks everywhere and of course now in a place like Kenya where we are no longer mandated to wear masks as much as we were maybe a month or two ago we are recording this at towards the end of of March um the conversation doesn't get any deeper than that and not to be one of those msanini kiocha jamii sorts you know but the like, artist is the mirror of society we're going to need you to be kio yeah I'm like, uh, give us a little more reflection than masks. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Because uh, it's not just masks. As we are saying, it's it's livelihoods, it's lives, it's um, it's global movements of capital. It's racism. It's you public know? politics. It's public I mean, policy. Kenya, we are now in a country where mask mandates have just been lifted. But also, it's also important to note that mask mandates have been lifted in an election year. Yeah. That, frankly, likely has less to do with questions of us being past COVID-19 and more with, like, people need rallies and people need people to gather. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, and I think so for us, and this isn't necessarily to sort of, you know, we don't necessarily want to rag on artists and say artists didn't do wonderful work or whatever. But, like, there was a moment in which there were a few responses that were in many ways trite mm-hmm. that didn't really quite engage with what the reality was and so and again it goes to that thing where it was like you know how did this time how did this ongoing event what kind of things does it tell us about the art world about art how we think about it but also how people like myself who are working with it like how are we participating in this you know like why are you situated in that matrix mm, yeah mm, mm. yeah because even i mean let's again let's just talk about you know the art world institutions and there was you know suddenly everyone had a zoom like i'm sorry but between <laughs> like march 2020 
and like maybe like July. Like I don't think there's ever been any more Instagram lives. But also it's a question. So it's like these resources were there before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So quite frankly, museums, etc., etc. You always had the tools to make your programming more accessible for broader audiences in many ways. But until that point when you have that realization that, hey, people can't come to the museum, that just wasn't done. So again, I think over and above the material ways in which it affected people's lives, it also, I think, highlights certain ways about the inequalities in the art world, how we think about our audiences, and quite frankly, the efforts that we put in trying to reach the people who this work is supposedly for. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think I, it will be interesting for us, and not not to turn into we will have a coronavirus segment or whatever. But, but who's to say this isn't the episode where you essentially <laughs> plan the episodes for the coming season? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but I think, I mean, like, one of the things, I don't know if I told you this, I've sort of not been very good at it in the recent past, but one of the things I did in the early days of the pandemic was reflect actively on the pandemic in my journal. I've been keeping a journal in one form or another since I was eight. I'm not eight, uh, <laughs> so it's been over 20 years. And um, just really talking about the pandemic directly because, you know, to provide some original documentation for historians, because, you know, I think I'm very important. Somebody's going to want to read my Of journal. course, of course. I mean, you know, you want to make some PhD <laughs> candidates work in 30 years easy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I think uh, I think it would be important for us to continue to think about that actively um, on, on the podcast and to think about, you know, like, Who's doing access well? Who's who's doing interesting programming around the yeah. pandemic? How are we doing access? How are we doing access? Podcast, you know, and yeah. so on and so forth. And I think that would be an interesting segment, even for us to be able to keep going back to. And maybe in twenty years' time, when you know we'll be speaking about this in the past, we can stitch together all of those segments and say, hey, you know, this this is. This is our COVID-19 <laughs> <laughs> time capsule or time whatever. capsule or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. because uh, it brought up a lot of things. As And I mean, mm-hmm. right now we are literally and figuratively heated. One day we will explain the literary bit, mm-hmm. the literally bit. But um, yeah, it brought up a lot of stuff, a lot of feelings, a lot of, as you say, very accurately, a lot of inequalities mm-hmm. and for me, the question is, it's really because so many people are obsessed with going back to normal. Normal, whatever normal looks yeah, like. Questioning because also, normal. what normal was is what made it so that when the pandemic came, some people were so adversely affected. So even that idea of normalcy is something that we need to think quite carefully about. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Mm. Anyway, yeah, Parapanda Ililia 2020 and the trumpet has not stopped sounding since. <laughs> Um, now that we've spoken about the pandemic, um, Allah forgive us, but we are haters. We are also going to talk about libraries. This is a segment where like, well, you know, the great thing about the pandemics, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, over to you, Nyambura. Let's talk about libraries in the past two, three years and what they've meant for us. Yaro, yaro, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it, <laughs> <laughs> Miss Mamas. <laughs> um, yeah, so in the early days of the, of the panorama, like in the early days of global lockdowns and so on, because I think it's important for us to acknowledge that the pandemic started earlier in China, you know, mm-hmm. um, a bunch of people. I, I'm in a very bookish corner of the internet, mm-hmm. don't can tell you this. And one of the things that popped up was libraries in the US uh, that were allowing membership from everywhere across the globe. So I joined this small, you know, compared to, say, the New York Public Library System library called um, the Campbell County Library or in the Kentucky Public Library System. Shout mm. down to the great state. Shout out to the great state of Kentucky. You've been very uh, good to us. Really and truly. <laughs> and it's led us to to uh, this love relationship with <laughs> an app called Libby, um, which is a way for you to read magazines, books, uh, which can also send to your e-reader. Um, audiobooks Audiobooks, well. mm-hmm. which Don introduced me to. Like Don had set, gave me the blue SI and said, I know you don't think of yourself as an audiobook person, but try this. And when I tell you I was converted, I now it listen hits. to them at it 3x. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm now a menace in the audiobook streets. But um, 
And so that was one of those things that came from the pandemic because we, we spent a lot of time hunkered down, especially in the early days. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it could get a bit stuck crazy, to be honest. And so just being able to have access to all of these books digitally, which, you know, you didn't have to worry about fines. You didn't have to worry about having to take a book back and maybe finding that the library was closed. Because yeah. I'm also a member of the Kenya National Library Services, Nairobi branch, Nairobi Central branch. And it was closed for so long. I was so worried I'd be slapped with fines, you know, from yeah. here to Timbuktu too but they cancelled fines and so on Mm -hmm. and I feel like libraries have been a really great way for us to access not just books as a whole but also for us to think about art and the art world yeah I mean, we claim that this is a podcast about art, so we might have also just mentioned we've, you know, I mean, the number of books that we've read, some of these libraries, you also share library cards, which also mean, like, on my device and your device, you can see what I'm reading and you can see what I'm, and it's I It's really part reading. of our relationship. We and, are, after all, yeah. platonic life. And, it, <laughs> <laughs> and it's meant that we've also read things, perhaps, together or one after the other, and, like, some really cool books we read, for example, are, like, um, The $12 Million Stuffed Shark by Don Thompson, which is The Curious Economics of, the, of Contemporary Art. And the thing for me that was really exciting, and I think you read this first, I borrowed mm-hmm. it, you read it, and then I, I read it, is the way the writer manages to talk about the art market, the global art market, i.e. Western Europe and North America, but like how they manage to speak about it in a way that sort of they deal with kind of, let's call them eccentricities mm-hmm. of the art market, of the art economy, some of the things that don't necessarily make quite sense, some of its logics, but managing to do so and do so without kind of resorting to cynicism or a kind of like sardonic voice which i think is quite frankly very easy to get there if you're looking at the art market because like i'm sorry but like that stuff sounds fake but (laughs) (laughs) i say it knowing full well i work at an art gallery Mm -hmm. but i think it was really interesting to just see someone who's in a sense we spoke earlier in this episode you've spoken about the idea of a participant observer Mm -hmm. but someone who's not necessarily an artist not a curator not an expert on contemporary art but at the same time someone who's invested in art someone who's a collector of art bringing their perspective to try and understand this field that in many ways is quite opaque so that was really really enjoyable and definitely like a book i would recommend to a lot of people yeah i really enjoyed it i mean i remember exactly where i was when i finished it i was on a walk i listened to a lot of audiobooks on walks and i was like raw i think i messaged you immediately and i was like this book is so good thank you for introducing me to it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because as you're saying like for someone who who is an insider outsider like myself i feel like you're more an insider than i am it was just something to to like yeah some of this stuff just looks fake you know (laughs) but as you're saying also the gaze was one in which uh, one of curiosity one of also like understanding like I would love to sit in on a class he teaches because I know he he's uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think he's an economist. He's I an think. economist, mm-hmm. yeah, and he teaches at a university in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be really interesting just to sit in on a class and to listen to because it was it felt like an invitation, mm-hmm. you know, more than mm-hmm. anything else. Yeah, and it was also one of those times when you and I have read a few books together mm-hmm. where our differing levels of knowledge did not impede our enjoyment of, yes. of the book. Yeah. Another book that featured art was The Museum of Modern Art by Heather Rose, mm-hmm. which, which I've just actually borrowed mm-hmm. again from the Seattle Public Library. So yeah. you know, shout out to those libraries. It, it centers around um, Marina Abramovich's uh, performance. What's it called? The Artist is Present. Yes. Mm-hmm. And which, which she's doing again currently mm-hmm. to, to raise money, I think, for the Ukrainian refugees mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so on. And it's not really about the work. The work features... But it's about all the things that are happening around the work. These mm-hmm. different people are coming to see the work. Mm-hmm. And they have these little, they have personal dramas, you know, yeah. as we all do. Uh-huh. And the personal dramas are interacting. And you with, know with I love personal work. drama in a book. Exactly. <laughs> and it was very much, it was an art TM book, you mm-hmm. know, that really, it was an art book in the way most of us experience art. Like, we are generally not on a day-to-day basis waking up and being like, oh, you know, unsent um, Zoe, for instance, who recently passed away or whatever. That's that's not what the we're waking up. you're waking up. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. But oh, we are encountering art in certain ways. We'll be like, oh, these giraffes make me think of unsent. These this mm-hmm. zebras, for instance, make me think of, of unsent Zoe or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Or like you'll be walking down the street and you'll see someone wearing a T-shirt and... 
of you know you you'll be like that t-shirt looks really interesting and it'll spur some thought of yeah, some art. and like for example we, we've done and this is something you do very often which is sort of maybe you're looking at books or you're looking at art and saying this will make a great book cover mm-hmm. this would make a cover for a children's book and so on and so forth yeah. so we are interacting in art in a lot of different ways in yeah. our lives yeah. consciously and unconsciously yeah yeah um talk about white girls oh my god white girls listen um all i'm going to say is like hilton Alves, white girls you should read it I, I, you should read it. Me, I, I don't know what to say, but you should read it. It's a collection of essays by the critic Hilton Ald, and it covers. I think he does a good job of also talking about art, and it's not just art, visual art. It's dealing with film. It's reaching into fashion, really culture more than necessarily art. But like, there's just this very kind of incisive eye that he brings to his subjects, mm-hmm. and this way to write a piece of it that's very far-reaching, but has a kind of you never lose sight of kind of the focus and the sort of the point of origin for the essay, but it really does a good job of connecting sort of like different elements, the sort of different things that are at play. So if it's a piece about a particular person, you know, you're seeing the person and how they move and how they work or whatever. There's also this kind of matrix within which they're operating. I mean, you remember earlier this year, we were reading that piece in the New Yorker that mm-hmm. he wrote, I think maybe 20, 20 plus years ago, mm-hmm. a profile about Andre Leon Talley and also reading that piece and reading that in light of the documentary that has just come out about Andre Leon Talley. Mm-hmm. So, and really what we're saying is there is A, shout out to libraries for giving us access to these books because A, neither of these books are available in bookshops in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. These you'd have to buy online and ship, etc., etc. At a very basic level, if I did the math on the number of books that I've been able to read because of the library, I would be out a lot of money. But over and above that, I guess, also thinking about, like, the work that libraries do, not just, like, in this case, the sort of digital lending, but, like, are there ways for perhaps that we could think about public libraries as models for programming for other public institutions? Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. where, like, what is there that we can learn from library systems that maybe can be pulled into programming for different arts institutions, for example? Yeah. Yeah. And what, what, uh, what, what lessons could they have even in terms of how to build institutions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how to fund them Mm -hmm. how to make them accessible Mm -hmm. and to make the work they do available to the people you know what i'm saying um and even this is a touch topic for don and i how to think about public private partnership yeah yeah what they could look like not just for libraries Mm -hmm. and And especially (laughs) these models the work they do Mm. and having that work be for the institution and for the people who that institution is allegedly built for and not just sort of, quite frankly, these weird self-congratulatory projects that are really very much for just the private people. Can I mean, there's organizations which you won't name in the city who have been doing programming in libraries and it's baffling to me that you have a public library and the thing that you choose to do in the library is a concert on a weekday night. Not to say that you shouldn't do concerts in libraries, but you have a library, you have books. I would imagine that that would be the starting point for you thinking about how to engage with the community. But you're sort of seeing a series of events that are all fun, fun and games. That quite frankly, like the books at this point are like props. So, and that's, it doesn't make sense to me, but also that you have events that have this sense of kind of inviting people from outside that locale to come in for a moment, have fun in the space, and then they leave. And you know what happens when they leave? the library is left there. And so if the library isn't the thing that you're thinking about, if the community around the library isn't the thing that you're thinking about, then quite frankly, why are you there? Yeah, like how do we think about these spaces as living and breathing mm-hmm. and and what does it mean then? Not that we are animating them. This is not, like, you know, Frankenstein's monster or whatever. Mm-hmm. But how do we how do we think about them beyond just, you know, physical spaces that, that are the sites of whatever performances we want yeah. to engage in and to think of them as generative spaces, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. that's been a very interesting, it's been a very interesting couple of years. Like as Don said, between the two of us, I think last year we read over 200 yeah. books. Between audiobooks, yeah. e-books, yeah. like it's yeah. just the world that opens up for you. It's really like, I mean, libraries, we rate them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Heavy, heavy, and we it they, they provide a site for us to really think about so many ideas around you know, making and institution building and so on that you know we'll continue to yes. contemplate going forward. And for friends of the podcast who perhaps are based in places where you have libraries and you have library cards and you feel that you want Don and Nyambura to read more. Feel free to, you know, DM us your library card membership information. It will just add you on our Libby. Yes. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you.
So thank you for joining us for the first episode of season two of Corpus. It's been really wonderful just catching up, telling you what we've been up to. And feel free to also tell us what you've been up to. Follow us online, on social media. And, you know, let's let's continue thinking and talking about art and related things together. As the kids say, please interact. Exactly. <laughs> this episode was produced and edited by Don and me. And it was recorded at Duv A Studios on Naivasha Road. You can find past episodes and transcripts as well as links to various resources at anchor.fm forward slash corpus pod or wherever you find podcasts. Don't forget to like, share, rate and review. Adios!